Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Our last episode was part one of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman with Strictures on Political and Moral Subjects by Mary Wollstonecraft, published in 1792. Today, I'm welcoming back my brilliant reading partner and dear friend, Megan Cahoon Alder, and we'll jump right back into the book. Our first topic is education. So Megan, can you start us off? Yeah. Yeah. This is one that really stands out for me, uh, her vision for the education of women. You know, she kind of begins by saying women are not the inferior sex. And then she's like, okay, maybe physically, but not intellectually. Mm -hmm. You know, they haven't been given a chance to prove themselves otherwise. So women aren't inferior by nature, but by consequence of miseducation. And so I really appreciate that. Um, You know, and she goes on to say that women have been relegated to the realm of sensibility or emotion, which tends to be kind of frivolous and shallow, and then they're mocked or scorned for it. And yet, you know, she kind of argues, like, what do we expect of them if that's the only education they're receiving? We cannot expect more from them if this is all they're given. So I just kind of hear her saying, cut some you know, cut women some slack, stop mocking them since it's society's fault that they're quote unquote like this. Um, yeah. She also argues for women to be educated so that they aren't left destitute. If a man decides he no longer wants to take care of her or if he dies. So she says, girls who have been thus weakly educated are often cruelly left by their parents without provision and of course are dependent on not only the reason, but the bounty of their brothers. In this equivocal, humiliating situation, a docile female will remain some time with a tolerable degree of comfort. But when the brother marries, a probable circumstance, from being considered as the mistress of the family, she is viewed with averted looks as an intruder, an unnecessary burden on the benevolence of the master of the house and his new partner. So basically, she not only has to be dependent on the kindness of her brother or other family members that might take pity on her, but she's just not equipped in the slightest to deal with what life has dealt her. And this message to women that their role in life is to be wife and then a mother definitely was the message that my mom was given growing up. Yeah, so I really think, you know, Wollstonecraft's view is pretty out there for the time. And I think for a lot of women in the 70s, you know, just as we're talking about that, it's pretty out there, right? Educate women because they will make better wives, mothers, and citizens. Um, You know, and here she kind of takes a turn and starts talking about how motherhood Um, a very natural thing and just this unnatural preoccupation with being beautiful and admired get pitted against each other when education is so limited. And she says, when a woman is admired for her beauty, she suffers herself to be so far intoxicated by the admiration she receives as to neglect to discharge the indispensable duty of a mother. Men are not aware of the misery they cause and the vicious weakness they cherish by only inciting women to render themselves pleasing, they do not consider that they thus make natural and artificial duties clash. So she makes several of these arguments of the natural predisposition for women to become mothers. And she even argues in several places that women who do not breastfeed are neglecting their natural bond and failing in a a very severe way. 
I, mm. I believe she's mindful of placing the woman in context of the patriarchy and acknowledging that the expectation is going to be pretty low when women aren't taught to be thinking more philosophically or rationally, that they're just going to tend towards the silly and the frivolous and, you know, kind of this preoccupation with being admired. And that's going to make them neglect their duties as a mother. But she does get pretty judgy <laughs> about motherhood mm. and and breastfeeding. In Mary's world, it just seems like a foregone conclusion that women will become mothers and then breastfeeding yeah. as well. Totally. I'm so glad you said that because it, it sadly does feel familiar to me, a woman kind of judging another woman mm -hmm. for her choices mm -hmm. in motherhood and breastfeeding, which as I think about it now, as I just said that um, in Wollstonecraft, I mean, well, we're all um, susceptible to doing things like that. It's not our... the you know, the better part of our human nature right. to judge each other. But right. here she is making these totally scandalous decisions in her reproductive life and then, you know, judging others. But sad to say, I think most of us do that at some point. Yeah, there, there are a lot of places where she's pretty harsh to women who are preoccupied with beauty and, uh, yes. you know, the vain things of the world, quote unquote. And I, I have to admit, you know, we're talking about being judgy. I was pretty judgy like her about, you know, the girly, girly stuff. I wanted to be taken seriously for my ideas, for what I brought to the table intellectually. I did not want to be noticed for what I was wearing or what I looked like. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's what Mary's trying to say here is that a woman, when a woman is told that her only way of being valued is through her attractiveness or her sexuality, then it stands to reason these parts of her self, you know, will be focused on and developed now, mm -hmm. is there anything wrong with liking to look attractive and feeling sexual? Absolutely not. And also, they are not the only parts of us that exist and not the only parts of us that have value. Yeah. Wow. Right? I yeah. mean, it hasn't gone away. No. This, this issue in um, A Vindication of the Rights of Women felt it like she could have written it now. Okay. Because, you know, we see women still spending inordinate amounts of time and thought and money on what she calls adornment. And in some cases, it truly is because women are in kind of a mental prison and they're wasting their, you know, their one wild and precious life on really trivial, ephemeral things and worrying about how they're perceived every waking moment of their lives. But it's tricky, right? It's so complicated because on the other hand, it's not healthy either to pretend we don't care how we look at all or to reject any interest in our appearance because we associate that with weakness or femininity. So it's super complicated. Yeah. So let's see, women's role in God. This was the next um, theme that really stuck out to me. Rousseau's whole premise, I'm going to go back to him for just a second. Um, his whole premise that women are created, you know, by God for man and that man tries to obtain her consent that he is the strongest. That's one of his quotes. She labeled mm. all of this as nonsense. You know, she literally said, this is nonsense. Um, you know, and you quoted some of his delightful ideas about the purpose of women. And she directly responds to him with really bold declarations. And this one spoke to me in particular. And she says, she says, and though the cry of irreligion or even atheism be raised against me, I will simply declare that were an angel from heaven to tell me that Moses's beautiful poetical cosmogony and the account of the fall of man were literally true, 
I could not believe what my reason told me was derogatory to the character of the supreme being. And having no fear of the devil before mine eyes, I venture to call this suggestion of reason instead of resting my weakness on the broad shoulders of the first seducer of my frail sex. End quote. This is a radical stance then. And, you know, it would probably be a radical stance to many now. But I appreciate so much that she is separating her own experience, you know, not what anybody else is saying. It should be her experience with God, but her own experience of God and taking God out of that very small box and saying, this does not resonate with me and what I understand of God. Her reasoning is telling her that this is not the character of God to create women to be inferior, right? And and therefore she's saying, I'm going to reject this, that God wouldn't create women solely as pleasers of men. That goes against God's character. And I really, that resonated a lot with me. I appreciated that Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, So bold. It is. Sorry. And for her to give herself permission to say that. Yeah. And even though it's in the scripture and even though it's in, you know, it's just commonly held belief and it's sacredly held belief. And for her to say, nope, I reject that. And I have a right to reject that. That's right. It's just gutsy. It is so gutsy. And I and I love her for it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the benevolent patriarchy screams its way throughout this whole chapter when she's quoting her contemporaries, all those Mm -hmm. quotes we read at the beginning. Um, And and some of them were not even so benevolent, right? But how they attempt Mm -hmm. to keep women subordinate by telling them how marvelous they are, right? That they need to be cared for, that they're innocent, that they're like children, and they need to be safeguarded and protected by using flattery and compliments, And she says, quote, this is not the language of the heart, nor will it ever reach it, though the ear may be tickled, unquote. (laughs) I love it. I do, because she's like, okay, so it might feel good for a little bit to be put up on that pedestal. It might make you feel cared for and valued and important, but she calls it out as a farce and nonsense, you know, and she bores into the heart of the matter by saying, do away with all of that flattery and pretending allow women to fully come into themselves and know all the different parts of themselves, not just the parts they're told they have to have in order to be accepted or acceptable. Let them learn like anyone else learns through experience and not just these borrowed reason, you know, from, from men that may get doled out here and there, but through real lived experience to fully exercise their mental capacity. So fantastic. Yeah. She, she goes on to say, why are girls told that they resemble angels, but to sink them below women? Or that the gentle, innocent female is an object that comes nearer to the idea which we have formed of angels than any other, yet they are told at the same time that they are only angels when they're young and beautiful. Consequently, it's their person, not their virtues, that procure them this homage. Idle, empty words. What can such delusive flattery lead to but vanity and folly? Mm, yes. I feel like I've heard just so many men say, like, about their wives, something like, oh, you know who really rules the roost around here? It's my wife. (laughs) Or just so many church talks, too, saying how important and valuable women, you are amazing. And I'm just over it. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
you don't have to say it if it's true. At a, at a big company, you don't hear people saying, you know who's really in charge? It's the CEO. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> right. Like you someone, you just look at them like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right? Like right. If, if something's true, you don't have to say it. And so for me, I think what would be better than all of those comments is instead of telling me how amazing I am, but then shutting me out of the meetings where you make decisions that impact my life, how about instead you say something like, you know what, this institution, whatever the institution is, whether it's the country or the church or a company or a family or whatever, like to say, you know what, this institution struggles with sexism and we are not going to pretend that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So instead of telling women what we think they want to hear, we are going to hold a forum or a meeting and we're going to hear from the women and brainstorm some measures to actually improve things in the way that the women think that they need to be improved. That's what I would prefer Yes, in place of all of those uh, um, ear-tickling compliments. Well, uh, yeah, and I was just going to say, it doesn't even tickle my ear, right? It just, no, it does no. Not, uh, no, it doesn't do anything for me. No. Yeah. Well, it makes us mad yeah, now, yeah, right? right? Because after all these years... I mean, I did, I did buy it at first. It would make me uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. I would kind of think, well, but they're being nice. Right. So what's wrong with That's me? That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's right? always what's wrong with me. It's never what's wrong with right. this system. It's always like, oh, I must be broken somehow. Cause this just isn't, I do feel uncomfortable around this. This doesn't make me feel good. Like they're saying it's supposed to. Right. That's right. very confusing. And, and if the, it, it is confusing. It's so confusing and hard to put your finger on it when the words themselves seem kind because they're compliments mm-hmm. and you're just like, ugh, why is this making me uncomfortable? Right. And now after having, you know, these decades of analyzing it, and that's, you know, a large reason why I'm doing this project, right, is to become more educated on it so I can be a more informed thinker and and see the the systems and the practices for what they really are. Yeah. So. Um, Okay, I have another couple of thoughts on a similar topic to this. Um, Wollstonecraft, in addition to quoting Rousseau a lot, and she quotes that that one other guy, Dr. Gregory, she repeatedly quotes a man named Dr. Fordyce. And here's a quote from him where he's writing from the point of view of God. Of course he is. (laughs) Of course he is. (laughs) So this is God speaking to men Mm -hmm. about women. Quote, behold these smiling innocents, whom I have graced with my fairest gifts and committed to your protection. Behold them with love and respect. Treat them with tenderness and honor. They are timid and want to be defended. They are frail. Oh, do not take advantage of their weakness. Let their fears and blushes endear them. Can you find in your hearts to despoil the gentle, trusting creatures of their treasure or do anything to strip them of their native robe of virtue? (laughs) Cursed be the impious hand that would dare to violate the unblemished form of chastity, end quote. Mm. Okay, so there are some parts in there that are funny, Mm -hmm. but um, there's a lot that we could discuss about sexuality in that other part of that quote, too, and we won't do that, but... Um, I'm grateful he's having God tell men to not sexually abuse women. Mm-hmm. That's one positive yep, thing. It sure is. But it, that's good. And it's better than, you know, promoting right. sexual abuse. Right. But he does 
also mixed in with that, he does promote a terribly damaging idea that a person's virtue can be taken away by someone else. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I don't have to tell you, um, as again, you're the expert on this, but I mean, it makes abuse victims feel like they're ruined and they have no virtue anymore if they do experience that. So Mm. that way of thinking is poison and it persists to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and again, we could talk at length about that, but we're not going to because um, we know actually from Wollstonecraft's embrace of sexual freedom that she would take issue with that, too. Mm-hmm. But she yeah. she doesn't hear the part that Wollstonecraft kind of battles against in this particular quote is the idea that um, women need protecting because they are timid, they are frail, they are weak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Wollstonecraft says, quote, Weakness may excite tenderness and gratify the arrogant pride of man, but the lordly caresses the lordly caresses of a protector will not gratify a noble mind that pants for and deserves to be respected. Fondness is a poor substitute for friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. End of quote. You can feel fond and tender for I mean, fondness and tenderness are lovely feelings, mm-hmm. but I feel like, you know, Wollstonecraft talks a lot about how women are kept in the state of being what she says, uh, what she calls perpetual children. Right. Right. Yeah. And and so this husband, what is supposed to be a husband wife relationship, which she says should be more like a peer relationship mm-hmm. is like a parent to a child or even like a dog owner to a dog. <laughs> right. You can. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. You you feel tenderness and fondness for things that are beneath you, but right, um, right, things that need your care um, because they can't care for themselves, right? So you think of your little infant baby or a little puppy dog, or you know something that cannot fend for itself, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, here's another quote, and I want to bring this one up because this is a concrete example of kind of this this issue that we're talking about in general. She gives a concrete example, and I think it still has current relevance. So I'll read this quote, and then we can talk about a modern application of it. Quote, I lament that women are systematically degraded by receiving the trivial attentions which men think it manly to pay to the sex, when, in fact, they are insultingly supporting their own superiority. So ludicrous, in fact, do these ceremonies appear to me that I scarcely am able to govern my muscles. When I see a man start with eager and serious solicitude to lift a handkerchief or shut a door when the lady could have done it herself had she only moved a pace or two, end quote. <laughs> love it. I love it. Yep. It's so great. <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, I. I love how she says, I'm scarcely able to govern my muscles. I, I love it. I get it, though. So like, funny. I get twitchy when, you know, when we're <laughs> reading Rousseau. I'm like, Ugh. so I totally get what she's yeah. saying. Totally. Yeah, she's saying, right, that these big gallant gestures of masculine heroism are insulting. Mm-hmm. And when a woman feigns weakness and says, oh, thank you, like, it reinforces the stereotype that women are dependent because she's saying, I couldn't have done that myself. Thank you for picking up that handkerchief or, you know, throwing your jacket on the puddle. So I don't have to get my shoes wet. Um, And so like the, the modern application of this, which is still, you know, 
in practice in our current society, which is kind of a vestige of these chivalrous, you know, grand displays is men opening doors for women, right? Mm -hmm. I have so many memories of getting into it with my dad about opening car doors or building doors or whatever for me and me being so bugged by it and just finally relenting because he wouldn't let it go. Um, you know, he insisted on quote unquote respecting me, but not really hearing my actual experience of not feeling respected by it. Um, mm. and, and then once I got used to, you know, and I just let in, he gave up because just it was pointless arguing with him about it. I also remember probably seven or eight years ago, we were at church and it was a, what's called an area conference where they have one of the higher ranking leaders speaking to us. And he was recounting stories about his wife. And how she would sit in the car and wait until he came to and open the door for her. And one time someone else was driving her and the guy got out of the car and went into the building and she waited and waited and waited until finally the guy figured out that he was supposed to go and open the door for her. Like open the car oh, and she just sat in the car. Oh my gosh. And this was honest to goodness. This was lauded as the correct way to be both for men to go mm -hmm. and open the door and for women to wait until someone does it for you. And I, yeah. I, I know, I remember walking out to the car afterwards. We had three kids at the time and, um, you know, we're just loaded with stuff. And, and then hearing several other couples make jokes about, oh, now you have to open my door for me, or I'm just going to sit here and wait for you until you do, you know? So we, it seemed like we weren't alone in all of our eye rolling, but this idea was definitely being taught as a God pr approved prescription of what men are supposed to do and that women are supposed to wait for them to do it. And, you know, to quote Wollstonecraft, what nonsense and absurdity. Totally. Nonsense and absurdity. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Because it does imply that the man is strong and the woman is weak. Mm -hmm. And I and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And that does have, it does carry weight in our psyches. I do it think does. it does. It, how can it Those not? little messages. Yeah. How, yeah. I agree. Wow. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion, Megan. And so I want to end by sharing this quote from Wollstonecraft. She's talking about how women are essentially brainwashed to accept their own inferior status within this caste system of patriarchy. And she says, quote, thus degraded, her reason is employed rather to burnish than to snap her chains, end quote. So she's arguing that women need to employ their reason, which is the very first point you made today, Megan, right? They need to employ their reason to take a step back, to realize that they occupy a place in society's structure that is not just. And for heaven's sake, they need to make sure that they're not just, you know, playing a role in the system that actually burnishes or, or polishes their own chains. Right. So my takeaway I guess, is to think about what role we are playing within the society we're born into. Are we maintaining any power structures that limit other people and keep them down? If we're doing that, is it because we've been taught that that's just the natural order of things and it's just the way they are? Are we breaking free of the things that are holding us back? And if we are, are we also supporting other people as they break, break free of the limitations that have been imposed upon them? 
um, and as they snap the chains, as Mary Wollstonecraft said. And I also want to say to all the supportive men in our lives and any men listening, thank you for being allies for girls and women while we do this important work. And like you said, Megan, we have come so far, but it's not done yet. So thank you for your allyship. Anyway, thank you, Megan, so very, very much for being here today. You are such a brilliant thinker, and I miss having these long talks with you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you, Amy, so much for this opportunity. I've honestly always appreciated your thoughtfulness and sensitivity to feminist issues, and I'm just really grateful to have been a part of this. Thank you. Thank you.